Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and it's just always exciting to be able to share thoughts with good people. And that's what we do on all editions of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Today, I, I'm going to actually, I will not have a guest because uh, I care so deeply and I'm pretty much involved with uh, our policy of drug prohibition and trying to repeal it. And that's what I've been doing for quite a while. And I know it's controversial, but a lot less so now than it has been before. But we're just going to go through this hour and talk about, in effect, our Drug Laws Have Failed. That's a book that I wrote on, on the subject. In fact, the entitled book is Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It or Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and a liber excuse me, a judicial indictment of the war on drugs. It was published in 2001 by Temple University Press. Second edition was 2012. But I, I just, it's so important and it's so thoroughly out throughout the, the society in our country as well as the world, and its results are almost entirely negative. So I was raised like you are. I, I got to tell you, I didn't think much about this whole issue. Uh, I equated heroin, for example, like most other people, with bad, with evil, with prison. And again, it was kind of logical. And, and if you say anything other than that, it's like you condone people to get hooked on heroin, which I've never heard anybody say is a good thing. So actually, then once I was in the United States Navy as a Judge Advocate General's office. Uh, I was a, uh, working at the Naval Air Station in Guam and uh, was a drug warrior. Basically, uh, I realized that that's what happened now. I filed charge sheets against my shipmates. I would then be a criminal defense attorney and, and defend other shipmates charged with various things. Uh, and then I look back, and when I was in Guam, it's about 1972 to 74, maybe around 1972 or 73, they had headlines in the nation's paper, uh, in the national paper there, that uh, had its first homicide since the end of the Second World War. And as it turned out over time, and they were all concerned, how can this happen to us on our island and the rest? But as time went along, we found out that it was a drug deal gone bad. By the time I left there, something like October of 1974, they were having homicides pretty much every month or two, almost always drug-related. So then I was a former uh, federal prosecutor in the United States Attorney's Office in Los Angeles. For a while, I held the record for the largest drug prosecution in the Central District of California, the Central Cities, which was at that time 75 kilos of heroin, maybe 165 pounds was, and of course is, a whole lot of heroin. Do you know what the record prosecution is today in the Central District of California? It's for 17 tons of cocaine in one place. You just can't, staggering, you can't imagine how much a ton of cocaine would be, but it's still continuing to increase. So as you think about it, I then became on the bench. 
And by about 1992, I'd started to look at what was going on in my own courtroom. And in fact, I still remember, this is the one that actually galvanized me, put me over the side to to take a stand on this publicly. But there was a, a guy, a young man who was being prosecuted for going with prostitutes, beating them up, raping them, and stealing from them. And he ended up, I, I was enforcing the sentence that was given by a superior court judge at the time and it basically resulted in about another month in custody and then he with time served credits would be released from custody we went through all of this and he was very respectful but he was a bad guy and by the time we were done he was sent back up into lockup he gave out a war whoop as if he had won and i started thinking to myself you know he has one that we're spending so much money in the criminal justice system on investigating prosecuting incarcerating nonviolent drug offenders that were not using those resources for the prosecution of robbery, rape, and murder. And so you start looking at these things, and yes, you understand that the presence of these drugs in our communities will bring harm. There's no question about it. But as Governor Gary Johnson would say, and I think he's right, that about 10% of that harm is the drugs themselves, the drug usage. that that, And they certainly cause real damage to some people, but it's drug money that causes about 90% of the problems. And what, the, what happens with the drug money? Well, understand, after we finally came to our senses and repealed alcohol prohibition, homicides went down the next year by 50% nationwide because a lot of these were just gangs fighting each other in order for the money. That went away. Mexico, look at Mexico with all of the crime, the corruption, the, the beheadings, has nothing to do with drugs at all. It's all drug money that causes those things. And then you get into the issue of quality control, which is huge. When we finally repealed alcohol prohibition, you know, these emergency rooms visits because of the poison in the alcohol, the white lightning, etc., lack of quality control, they almost went away to zero because you have bring in quality control. But today, if you're buying black market drugs, you have almost no idea what you're putting into your body. So I can tell you, this also affected me a great deal. When I was on the municipal court here in Orange County, I sentenced two young men at different times, unrelated, but the, basically the same thing happened, and it was being for under the influence of methamphetamine. And it was then, and it still is, a violation of Section 11550 of the Health and Safety Code in California, that if you are convicted or plead guilty to being under the influence of narcotics or methamphetamine, it's an automatic 90-day sentence. I couldn't give them any less. I wasn't going to give them any more. They had no reason to lie to me. And why am I bringing this up? Because anyone that pleads guilty in California, pretty much any other jurisdiction, has to give what they call a factual basis. And that means that you have to put in your own words why you're guilty of the offense. So I'd asked each of these young men what the deal was. And he said, well, your honor, I would buy my, for years, I was buying marijuana from the same supplier. And one fine day he sold me some marijuana unbeknownst to me that was laced with methamphetamines. I smoked it a few times and got hooked. And I still remember thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. We all realize that smoking cigarettes is hazardous to your health, but at least if you go to your local mini-mart and buy a pack of Marlboros, you're going to know it's not laced with methamphetamines. That's a drug prohibition problem. So I did something really unusual for a sitting trial court judge, and back on April the 8th, 1992, 
I held a drug, I held a press conference. And believe me, judges do not do that. And I announced to anybody that would listen that our nation's drug policy of drug prohibition is not working. We have to put our heads together and come up with alternatives. And in fact, we do have alternatives. That's the thing that people do not realize. We'll talk about them in a minute. So I did hold that press conference. And by the way, huh, I always remember what the date was. It was April the 8th, 1992, because I was on a civil calendar at that time. So it had to be on a Wednesday because I had lawn motion at 1.30 in the afternoon on Wednesdays. And so I planned my lawn motion. Usually I would prepare them in the morning and then have them heard in the afternoon. But this time I planned them the day before and I took a a vacation morning and decided that I was already on April the 1st to do this. Then I thought to myself in my wisdom, oh, come on, Jim, if you give this on April Fool's Day, that would probably not be a good idea. So I, I waited a week. So that's how I always remember what the date was. But I would then list what we, what we were doing and give proposals. And among other things, you know, about talk about problems that I, there are in effect five groups of people today that are winning with regard to drug prohibition policy. And who are they? Well, without any much difficulty, you can determine big-time drug dealers. You know, the Mexican drug cartels and everything are making billions of dollars a year in the sales, uh, and untaxed, by the way. And, of course, no one in law enforcement in the United States will say that we seize more than 10% of the illegal drugs coming into the country. Uh, the more honest ones assessments will be about 5%. So you have these big seizures of a ton of cocaine or whatever. That's just a cost of doing business. The people, big time dealers are laughing at us. So the big time dealers are winning. The second group of people that are winning are the juvenile street gangs. You know, they are using this as a recruiting tool. I was in juvenile court for quite a while, and you'd see this almost on a daily basis. The juvenile street gangs would be recruiting young people saying, hey, you want to make some money? Well, you'll never make as much money in your life as you will by selling drugs. Come on, join our gang and be a part of the action. And it's working and it's corrupting our people. Juvenile street gangs are winning. The third group, by the way, is law enforcement. You know, it's amazing that they have a partnership, at least in this way, the good guys with the bad guys, because they're all making more money because of drug prohibition. They're paid increasingly large amounts of money to fight against, of course, the first two groups. Their bureaucracies keep getting bigger. And, of course, like we said before, they're spending so much money on trying to prosecute these nonviolent drug offenders that they're not using that money to prosecute robbery, rape, and murder. And I'm not pointing the finger, please believe me, not pointing a finger at law enforcement and saying you failed us. They're doing a far better job now than they've ever done before. They're getting more arrests, more seizures, longer prison time, but then again, they're still winning. And are we better off for it? And of course, the answer is we really are not. Fourth group, and here I'm getting you know, getting excited, maybe talking too fast, but it's probably one of the most important issues of our day because drug prohibition policy has its tentacles in pretty much everything that's going wrong in today's world. The fourth group of people that are winning are politicians. They get elected and re-elected by talking tough with regard to the war on crime. And this really goes back to the Nixon administration where the, Richard Nixon's administration knew that drug treatment actually works and reduces crime and suffering, but they decided to go with incarceration instead because as stated by his former attorney general, Richard Kleindeast, they figured that by declaring war on something that couldn't fight back, they'd get a lot of political benefits. So they chose that path. 
And, of course, thereafter, he said, according to Mr. Kleindienst, that the benefits of that politically were far in excess of even what they were anticipating. Politicians continue to do that, and they always will until we the people, we the voters say, I don't want you to talk tough. I want you to talk sensibly with regard to this area. Then they will they will change in effect because politicians are great at followership, but politicians have been winning. And the first group of people that are, the fifth group are the private sector, the people, the companies that make money because of increased crime. Who might that be? Well, let's see, people that sell burglar alarm equipment, security guards, you know, even uh, uh, police unions, people like that, they're winning. And of course, that's logical. Who's losing? And the answer to that question is, everybody else, particularly our children. Now look, don't don't take my word for it. Ask the next 10 teenagers you find, hey, young man, young lady, if you wanted to, that's key, if you wanted to, what would be easier for you to get in today's world, marijuana or alcohol or even methamphetamines, if you cared? And they, they will all tell you, if they cared, it would be easier for them to get marijuana or even these other drugs. Why? Because the illegal dealers do not ask for ID. So we're, we're losing that war. Ask them this question. Hey, how many of the, of the young people, your colleagues in high school are selling marijuana on their high school campus and they all know people that are? How many are selling Jim Beam bourbon? And the answer is nobody. They could, but there's no money in it. And so therefore, that's what's happening. Our society is losing. We're luring young people into this lifestyle of drug usage and drug selling. So then you take a step back. And, and look like I have. No society in the history of mankind has been without mind-altering, sometimes addicting substances, except maybe the Eskimos, because they couldn't grow anything, but now chemistry and transportation has changed that away. So if you understand that, then let's understand that because these mind-altering, sometimes addicting substances will be in our society, it will bring harm. Without question, we've discussed some of that already. So let's take steps to have a program that will reduce that harm. It's called drug harm reduction, and that's where we need to go. So again, you always understand that there will always be people there to mentor our children, to lure them one way or the other. And this reminds me to the first drug prosecution I had as a federal prosecutor. There was a DEA agent who was undercover, and he was about to, as he told me, was going to about to have this this controlled by and then the bust, the arrest of these people. But then he looked and he saw that the person that was the, the drug dealers that were going to come in, he'd gone to high school with one of them. And he immediately got on the radio saying, bring in somebody else, because if I come out here, this guy knows me and the whole thing will be will be torpedoed. So they did and they brought in somebody else. And, and that was the the, his former friend was the one that was being prosecuted. And he told me, Judge Gray, I was then Jim Gray, uh, Mr. Gray, when I was in high school, I was mentored by my basketball coach. And so I ended up in, as a federal in a federal uh, federal investigator. But my friend was mentored by a drug dealer. And but for the grace of God, the tables could have been reversed and I would be the defendant and he'd be the DEA agent. So understand, someone will always mentor our children. And if it isn't you, the parents, the basketball coaches, the scout leaders, it will be the drug dealers. It will be the juvenile street gangs. Say what you will. 
Charles Manson is always out there. People like him, and he was extremely effective at mentoring people into his family as such. They're always out there. We need to do a better job mentoring our children, and the first way we can do this is to regulate and control these drugs instead of prohibiting them for all of those problems. So we engage in harm reduction. Actually, uh, shortly after I held my press conference in 1992, we all went up in about 1993 to the Hoover Institute at Stanford University in which we actually hammered out what we called the drug policy resolution saying resolve these various problems that we've talked about a little bit so far and then let's put our minds together. Let's have a neutral, non-political commission to investigate the whole policy of drug prohibition and give recommendations. And this was signed at the, it's been signed by George Schultz, who was Ronald Reagan's uh, Secretary of State, signed by Milton Friedman, signed by numbers of uh, former law enforcement officers and politicians and the rest. And we still have this politi- this re- this resolution. You can see a copy at judgejimgray.com if you're interested in signing it, getting this word out. We're still trying to, dis- to legitimize the discussion because that's really all we should need to do. Just legitimize this discussion and recognize that actually we have alternatives. We have viable alternatives for this because there is hope. I asked the question out on the on the stump. We're talking with people. A show of hands. How many of you people feel today that we're in better shape with regard to this whole issue of drug prohibition than we were 10 years ago? And uh, almost no one raises their hands. Those that do point to these sea change around different states with regard to how we're treating marijuana, uh, pretty much treating it like wine or at least bringing it under the control of medical professionals for medical marijuana, but otherwise we're not. And in fact, you're probably aware of this, that the United States of America leads the world in the incarceration of our people, both by sheer numbers as well as per capita. We have 5% of the world's population and about 25% of its prisoners. As former Senator John Webb from Virginia said, either in analyzing these statistics, either we're the most criminally oriented people in the world or we're doing something wrong. Which do you think it is? And a primary amount of that is because we have made these drugs illegal. And if you look at it from a practical standpoint, and I'm not saying that police officers uh, are are necessarily just doing this for selfish reasons for, for the rest, but if you look at it, particularly chiefs of police or police upper echelon are really concerned about statistics. They're concerned about their they're closing cases by having an indictment, having a conviction, as opposed to unsolved cases, and that makes a big difference politically. But analyze, if you have a drug case, you don't have a, a crime until the person is arrested. So there isn't a crime, there isn't a crime, then you have this undercover dry uh, bust, or you see somebody in the influence or whatever, the crime is solved immediately upon it being called to your attention and created. So they're, they're solved cases percentages go way up. If you were to remove those, then their unsolved cases would go down because robberies and rapes and murders, etc., are frequently not solved. So that's just yet another more sophisticated issue about this whole area and why this is being perpetuated. But there is hope. There is hope because we have alternatives. We have 
different ways of treating these, and we don't have to be experimental because they've been going on in various countries around the world, really importantly. And let me first start with a program that was in Liverpool, England, and it was started under the direction and control of a medical doctor, Dr. John Marks. And what happened is they would actually bring in, go around to communities and bring in heroin addicted people into their medical clinics. And then they'd be interviewed by a medical staff. It would be a medical professional, a, a social worker, and a nurse. And then they would find out what the strength of their addiction was, how they were doing, and what they could do better. What would they then do? Oh, like what you and I would try to do. They'd try to give them drug treatment to get off these drugs, but many people either don't think they can or even don't want to get off drugs like heroin because they're so addictive. So they say, okay, as long as you satisfy three criteria, we have a program for you. And the criteria was, number one, you are at least 21 years of age and have failed traditional drug treatment at least twice. Number two, you are addicted to heroin. Not that hard to prove. And number three, that in the future, you will be and remain crime-free. So if you're even arrested in the future, you'll be off the program. What did the program mean? Well, they would, first of all, have a blood test and figure out the strength of their addiction. Secondly, they'd be given a prescription for heroin, which could be filled at pharmaceutical prices. And number three, they could inject that heroin daily under medically controlled circumstances at the clinic. Now, what happened? Well, first of all, they found out that crime, the street crime, reduced noticeably in the areas surrounding the clinics. For example, the stores found out that the shoplifting went down by about eightfold because if you're even arrested on while you're on this program, you're going to be off the program. You're going to have to go back to the hustle. And you can't imagine Think of this yourself. If you have a $200 a day heroin problem, for example, where are you going to get the money? Most people can't afford $200 a day. Some can, but most cannot. So you're going to have to go out and prostitute yourself. You're going to have to go out and burglarize your my equipment pro uh, uh, property in order to get that. And then you're going to have to burglarize about $2,000 worth of property because your fence will only give you about 10%. So you have to do that each day. It's a real hustle. It's a problem. It's difficult. So you don't want to go back to the streets. Uh, and then you always realize, of course, then you have to find your connection, your fence in order to get your drugs. So you go up and down. So you can live a much more normal life if you are, in fact, on this program and you go away from crime. So this program was thriving. It was going quite well in Liverpool until a bad thing happened from their standpoint. And that is that 60 Minutes, you know, the television show here, heard about this and had a, a segment about it on about for about 15 minutes on 60 Minutes. I saw this actually myself. And so it actually talked about this program, showed the results, and I still remember they were interviewing a young lady, a mother, who was, was kind of hokey. She was pushing maybe her four-year-old daughter on a swing in a park, and they interviewed her and say, well, tell us, you're on this program, aren't you? Yes. Well, tell us your background. And she said, you know, I, I was a prostitute. I was addicted to heroin, and I was a prostitute, and it was just a terrible life. But as soon as I got on this program, a couple of things happened. The first was that I looked myself in the mirror. And I thought, wow, I'm not taking care of myself. Now that I'm on this program, I can live a pretty much normal life. I'm working as a secretary, and, and, and I'm really pretty good shape. But I started taking care of myself. The second thing I saw was, 
oh, my little daughter here, I wasn't taking care of her at all. I was irresponsible. So I'm now taking care of my daughter, living a pretty much normal life. I'm on the program. And I actually went back to prostitution one time just to see, remember what it was like and physically got sick to my stomach at the degradation. So that was that was wonderful and it was showing good things. Unfortunately, this was during the Reagan administration and uh, so the Reagan administration contacted, as I've been told, by Dr. Marx, because I met him about five years after this happened, and they convinced the English government to do away with this program in Liverpool because it was so counter to what the United States drug policy was. So Margaret Thatcher, in effect, shut the program down. And Dr. Marx told me he was just convinced that it was because of political pressure from the United States. So I asked him the question, okay, the program was shut down. Remember that young lady that was being interviewed, the young mother, what happened to her? And he looked at me and shook his head and, you know, she went back to the streets. She's now dead from an overdose. So you had the quality control under this program, pharmaceutical prices. And by the way, understand that none of these drugs we can talk about that are illegal, they're not expensive at all. You don't call marijuana a weed for nothing. It will pretty much grow anywhere. And in fact, the opium poppy, which goes to making heroin for years, was being grown by the National Park Service at Monticello in Virginia until the DEA found out about it, make them take it out. It's really a beautiful flower, but uh, they made them take it out. But I assure you, if the opium poppy will grow in Virginia, it will grow anywhere. So the only reason they're expensive is because they're illegal for a maximum of $10 a day. Even the heaviest using heroin subject could sustain his or her habit. So it was all money. So these are things that happen because of politics, because in the Reagan administration, by the way, when they again ratcheted up the war on drugs, homicide prosecutions were only 50 percent as successful in 1983 as they'd been in 1982, because once again, they're spending so many resources on the prosecution of nonviolent drug offenses instead of robbery, rape and murder. But there's good reason. There's good hope in this whole story with Dr. Marx because, yes, it was closed down in Liverpool, but Switzerland picked it up and they started doing this program. It's called a heroin maintenance program and it's going on to this day. And after we come back from these few words and messages, we will bring you more hope showing you the things that work as opposed to drug prohibition, which flat out does not. So this is Judge Jim Gray. I'm certainly enthusiastic on this. I've certainly gotten more and more information Nothing is perfect, I understand, and there's going to be problems no matter where you go and talking about it. There's going to be harms, but let's use it together, join hands and put in programs, philosophies and and whole uh, programs that will actually reduce that harm because it can happen. Help is on the way, and you'll hear more about it after these few words. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. 
the Libertarian Party, is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is, again, Judge Jim Gray on Voice America Network, and we're talking about the failure of drug prohibition. By the way, uh, my wife, before I resume this tirade and talking, because it's so important, I get carried away because we're, we're just doing it so wrong. But my wife has encouraged me to bring in something silly. So my, my silliness for the moment is we should ban pre-shredded cheese and we should make America great again. Of course, it depends how you spell great. It's kind of, those are lexophiles, which I kind of enjoy. Uh, another one would be when the young lady saw her first strands of gray hair, she thought she'd die. Of course, the difference there is how do you spell die, but it's just kind of fun. So thank you, Grace, my wife. Uh, I continue to do this maybe to the groans of my audience, but I'm here to put a smile on your face and take away those groans because we were just talking about the program of heroin maintenance in under Dr. John Marks in Liverpool, and it's died because of political pressure. But the people in Switzerland who are pretty pragmatic learned about it and back in the, in the middle 1990s started putting in a pilot program in five cities in Switzerland. And they would again adopt the same approach. They had medical clinics in those five cities around where a lot of the people involved with, with heroin would be. And they, they put in the same type of program. But by the way, before I go through this recitation, whenever I talk about Switzerland, people immediately think, oh, Needle Park in Zurich. And that was a failure. So the whole medical intervention should not work. And, and Needle Park was a failure. What they did there was, this is in the 1980s. They actually had a program where they segregated off a particular park in Zurich, Switzerland. And if people were arrested for using various drugs, the police started saying, well, you know, I'm sorry, I have to arrest you here. But had you been over in that area, in the, in the park area, we would leave you alone. So how long do you think it got for the community of drug-using people to figure out that, hey, let's use our drugs in Needle Park instead. And it really worked quite well for a while, that they would have medical officers there, they'd have police officers there just to keep security, uh, and it worked pretty well for a while. But then, of course, logically, the word got out to other cities around the country or around the world, and all of these people that were drug-addicted started flooding into Needle Park, and uh, it was pretty bad. They they had lots of pictures taken of really rather disgusting things happen. They 
just got overrun. So the Swiss closed down the project. But it really wasn't a, a project that was not working. They have a needle exchange program there, which in many ways is a really effective organization and program. You exchange a dirty needle for a clean one. No money changes hands. No questions are asked, period. Well, we in California have had some, some bad press with regard to some needle exchange programs, but they're doing it wrong. They're providing, you know, you bring in three needles and we'll give you 10 or something like that. And so there's no incentive to find those needles or to to do anything other than throw them away uh, in the community in sandboxes or whatever, because you want to only give as many clean needles as people bring in dirty ones. If you have to have a dirty one to get a clean one, then people will start looking for and, and keeping these part these these dirty needles out of society. But that's a little off the, off the subject. But what happened in Switzerland? Well, they put in these five pilot programs in the cities, and they again had the same results that Dr. Marx did, that they were able to live their lives pretty successfully. Uh, they would be able to use these drugs under medical circumstances, prescribed by pharmacies, etc., with the same results. Crime went down uh, and the rest. And they, they found that, that uh, people were getting the help they need, and about 10% per year would actually say, okay, doc, I trust you. I'm working with you. Help me now get into drug rehabilitation. Let me get off this stuff. And so they were really having remarkable success. But, of course, like anything else, there would be objectors. And, oh, my goodness, oh, you can't do this. Oh, horrors. You're having the government be the pusher of these heroines. And and as you'd understand, the people would, would rebel against that concept. So they had an election. They had a plebiscite in late 1990s Switzerland countrywide. Shall we continue with this program or shall we not? And the voters voted 85% to continue with this heroin maintenance programs. And now they have it in every city in in uh, Switzerland where there is a need. And I, I can tell you that Swiss parents care fully as much about their children as we do, but they see a program that's working. It's not on this philosophy, on this this uh, kind of imagined problem. They see something that's working, and it's still in effect in Switzerland. I would ask you, as my listeners, why should we not have similar programs in every town and city in our country where there's a need? And the answer is, you know, we, we really should, except for that, that kind of parade of horribles philosophically where you oh, no, yeah, that has a, a message to our children that, okay, using heroin is not that bad, so it's not illegal. Uh, I can agree with you that what we label as being illegal is a comment by society uh, that, uh, no, this is not a good idea, but put it into this way. The biggest success story we as a country have had, in my estimation, about mind-altering, sometimes addicting drugs, deals with cigarettes. You know, the United States consumption of cigarettes has come down, what, by about 50% in the last 10 or 15 years? Not by making these drugs illegal, but by putting out honest information into the workplace and also having regulations and controls that thankfully, if you're going to fly in an airplane today, they don't smoke. Why? Because it's regulated and controlled. Control. We have we have regulations that are enforceable. Same thing if you go into buildings that, that uh, you can't smoke inside those buildings. What would I do with regard, for example, to bars or places where they, they drink? Some can smoke cigarettes if they want to. Put up a sign saying, okay, come to Jim Gray Bar uh, and we, you can smoke cigarettes. And then you can choose. You can come into it or not. I assure you, I would not. I, I hate cigarette smoke and the rest. I've never smoked, never plan on it. But, but it should be a matter of free 
freedom. Same thing with marijuana. If you want to use marijuana in this particular bar, come in and you can. Other bars say, I'm sorry, not a chance. I'm going to frequent the ones, of course, that, that do not. But these are things that we simply need to regulate and control. Let's talk about other countries. Let's talk about Portugal, for example, because Portugal realized in the year 2001 that they had a larger drug abuse problem than any other country in the European Union. So they did something really intelligent and they created a bipartisan non-political commission to go out into the country to figure out what was going on to come back with, with a report as to what was happening and give recommendations as to what to do about it. So they did. And it took something like seven or eight months. They came back and they said, you know, we have two serious problems in Portugal. Number one is that we have people that are abusing these drugs and they're, they're causing medical harm to themselves and they're creating crime. And number two, though, is we're spending so much money on the investigation, prosecution, incarceration of these people, we don't have money left over for drug rehabilitation for, for that. And so they did something really important in Portugal in the year 2002. They decriminalized all drugs. Now, let me stop for a moment because words mean something. And usually in this area, these various terms are thrown around interchangeably and they're not. I, Judge Jim Gray, would not legalize any of these drugs, marijuana, methamphetamine, whatever. No, if you think legal drugs, think aspirin. Now, you, your 12-year-old daughter, could go to any pharmacy in the country and could buy a case of aspirin if you wanted to. The price is set by the free market. There's no distinction between generic or, or uh, 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 brand names or anything. And it could be advertised fully on the private, in the private sector. And the price is set by the free market. No one I know wants marijuana or these other drugs to be legalized, as that term means. Decriminalize is something totally different, like they were doing in Portugal, like they'd done in Holland for years before that. Decriminalize means it is still illegal to buy, use, sell, possess any of these drugs, but if you stay within very well-known general guidelines, the police are instructed frequently in writing to look the other way and not enforce the law. Now, look, I'm a retired judge. I've been a judge for 25 years. I believe in having reasonable laws, but then I believe in enforcing those laws. And to instruct the police not to enforce the law causes me some conceptual problems. Nevertheless, decriminalization is working far better than our drug of, of, pro, of prohibition here. The other approach is to regulate and control these various drugs. And I would ask, particularly in California when we had initiatives uh, uh, about marijuana, I'd ask people, do you want to legalize marijuana? They'd look at me, no, no, not a chance. I wouldn't do that. I care about my children, etc. If you'd ask the same idea, but phrase it differently, would you like to treat marijuana like wine? Have it strictly regulated and controlled? And the answer is, sure. Why not? It sounds pretty good. I know it's out there. We might as well regulate it, control it, tax it, enforce laws with regard to age restrictions, etc. So I would have these drugs regulated and controlled, certainly marijuana, but go back to the concept of federalism. What does that mean? Our country, by the way, was founded on federalism, which means that each state should be able to decide how best to support and, and 
protect its people. So maybe in Indiana, for example, some people would come up with an approach and then uh, it worked pretty well. And Illinois next door would come up with an approach that really didn't work very well. And pretty soon Illinois is going to say, well, I don't know. What do you think, Charlie? We thought this was a good idea at the time, but it isn't working. Wait, wait, look what's happening in Indiana. Let's adopt their approach. So we learn from each other. And maybe what would work in Oklahoma would not work in New York or vice versa. So allow each state to decide how best to do this. And that's where, of course, we should go, which is, of course, what's happening in Switzerland and the rest and Western Europe, which is a good thing. So the last approach then would be we have legalization, which we discussed, decriminalization, strict regulation and control. And the last one is a medicalization. And that's, of course, the heroin maintenance program. It's under the guidance, the assistance, the oversight of medical professionals, which is a good idea and what I think should happen with regard to any of these drugs other than marijuana. I would regulate and control marijuana like like wine and then with regard to the others bring them closer to medical professionals that can help them instead of labeling them automatic criminals and pushing them farther away. One big example that I use is Robert Downey Jr. And of course, I'm a libertarian. I believe in less government, etc. But talk about Robert Downey Jr. who's a very gifted actor, as I'm sure all of you know. And he's been a lifelong heroin addicted person. From what I can tell, he's doing really well now. He's making good movies, but he has to be careful. He'll always have that craving. But it, much, it makes as much sense to me to put Robert Downey Jr. in jail for his heroin problem as it would have Betty Ford in jail for her alcohol problem. And it's Most of you know Betty Ford, of course, was President Gerald Ford's wife and a self-acknowledged alcoholic. But it's the same problem, isn't it? It's a medical issue. Bring these people closer to medical professionals that can help them, again, instead of labeling them automatic criminals and pushing them farther away. But... If Robert Downey Jr., Betty Ford, you or I drive a motor vehicle under the influence of, you name it, marijuana, methamphetamines, cocaine, alcohol, which is my drug of choice, that's a crime and should be, and should be. What's the difference? And the answer is, now by my actions in getting involved with being under the influence of methamphetamines, alcohol, or whatever, I'm putting your safety at risk. That's a legitimate criminal justice issue. But understand as well, and I've been involved in the justice system all my professional life, the criminal justice system is designed to protect us from each other. You'll have a victim, he'll come forward. It's designed and pretty effective at protecting us from each other, but it's not designed for and is totally ineffective at protecting us from ourselves. So that's the reason why drug prohibition is not working, spending all of this time, labor, effort, money on trying to work out a system for us to protect in effect, protect me from myself. It's not designed to, and it just doesn't work. And philosophically, as a libertarian, I can tell you, and I think you would agree, the government has as much position, much business in controlling what I as an adult put into my body as it does what I put into my mind. It's none of their business. Hold me accountable for my actions that might put other people's safety at risk, but leave whatever else as an adult that I do from thinking or from putting into my body to me. And I can then bring me closer to medical professionals. So those are various things. We talk about things that work. That's what works. What happened in Portugal? 
Well, they found that the use of drugs in Portugal after they put in this decriminalization pretty much remained the same. You know, originally it spiked, of course, because it was a different program. And while it had a certain allure to it and the rest, it's no longer illegal uh, and the rest. But then it's really came down to what its original levels were. But problem drug usage went down by 50 percent pretty quickly, because now if a police officer sees you and you're under the influence or you're using this stuff, he, she would give you a citation, but not to come to a judge like me, but to go see a medical doctor, a medical professional. And then they say, well, tell you what, Charlie, tell us about your usage. Tell us about your habit. What do you do? What can we do to help you? Bringing them closer to medical professionals, problem usage has gone down by 50%. And they also noted that usage among teenagers also went down somewhat. Why? Oh, because it's no, it used to be glamorous and now, you know, what do I want to go and use heroin and then see a doctor for? It took away the glamour, the kind of unfelt uh, push toward, toward the seduction of using something that was no longer illegal. So, so that has happened and it is really working well in Portugal. Think of it a different way. Think about drug prohibition of course, there's a lot of money in it. And I still remember reading an article, oh, this had to be 20 years ago, where we intercepted a freighter that came from North Korea. And it turned out it was laden with methamphetamines, this artificial cocaine methamphetamines. And why? Because the government of Korea was involved with it and they were making huge amounts of money. I personally believe without any authentication, uh, this is only from me, that probably North Korea's nuclear program was funded by the sale of illegal drugs. And it would surprise me if that were not true because of the enormous amount of money that you can make by selling internationally these prohibited substances. Substances. Same thing with Fidel Castro in Cuba, made a lot of money pushing and selling these drugs. Eric Honecker, if you'll remember, back in East Germany, was found as a programmed national basis. His government was involved in selling illegal drugs. So bad guys are winning. You remember Manuel Noriega of Portugal, we actually went to war and took him out of office. But as I understand it, there's as much drugs coming through Panama now as there were when Noriega was there. It's the money, folks. So these are things that we just need to combat, to be aware of, and to discuss. Because there is also a violent prohibition against discussion. And if that were the case, I guess I would be under arrest because here at All Rise, we talk about this with some frequency. Uh, We go back to this organization. It's a wonderful group called LEAP, which originally stood for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. But because prohibition laws are so in touch with so many other issues in the criminal justice system like bail and over-incarceration and racial issues and stuff. So one of the first interviews we had was with the LEAP executive director, a man named Major Neil Franklin, a wonderful man. He's the executive director of Law Enforcement Action Partnership. That was broadcast last April 26, 2019. But if you're interested, go to our website at at voiceamerica.com on the Variety Channel and click back on to, because you can get any of these on demand if you wish, uh, April 26, and listen to a really great interview with Neil Franklin of LEAP. So to come back to this then, today we all know this. We have a problem with fentanyl, and fentanyl is a killer. It's an artificial drug, mostly as I understand it, manufactured in China, and it can be sent over here in a FedEx and 
envelope for all that matters because it's so small. Think of it this way. You've all seen these little packets of sugar that you get in, in restaurants. If you had just a packet of that much fentanyl, that is enough to kill 100 people, as I understand it. I don't mean to be fear-mongering. Maybe it's only 50, but it's very powerful stuff. And it's, it's a killer. And you read, of course, this is an epidemic around the country, and it's certainly presenting some harm. I will maintain that it's caused by drug prohibition, that you get these people on the black market. It's cheaper than getting even cocaine or whatever. So if some people, these bad drug dealers, will add it to this stuff, sell it to you or your children or your neighbors. You don't know what you're putting into your arm, and then you, you inject it, and you'll die. Because you don't know what the strength is. You don't know what the purity is. And so these are the reasons why this fentanyl epidemic is running around. You find in Holland, which is decriminalized drugs, and they have a process for, for making them uh, – Less, less harmful from because quality control. There's no fentanyl in Holland whatsoever. I don't know, but I anticipate that there's no fentanyl problem in Portugal either because it's more regulated and controlled. And then you look at these, the situation as well. The DEA today, look, the who is deciding, we already discussed this, about which drug will be on which schedule should be done by the Surgeon General instead of a police officer. But as a result, the DEA is now investigating, even hounding medical doctors that are involved with pain medication, and they're hounding them to keep them from over-prescribing some of these these painkillers. And so, and maybe some of that happens, but that should be done just like anything else in the medical community. If you're outstanding the standards, then you should be held accountable and even prosecuted if in fact you're abusing it. But you should have a medical doctor overseeing this, not a police officer. But today, as a result of the DEA hounding medical doctors, I will assert to you that there are tens and tens of thousands of people in our country that today are in unnecessary pain. And when it comes down to it, if a person, for example, is in pain and has six months to live or so, what difference does it make if that person gets addicted to some form of opiate? The question is not to have that person in pain. They are because of drug prohibition, because of the DEA hounding these various medical doctors. So I've been involved, in fact, I was on the O'Reilly Factor a couple of times. The second time, we had a new drug czar, and I immediately went on it because you don't have much time and said, you know, I'm sorry that you are here, that that uh, you are a police officer. You're the one that should be actually not making these decisions. And I got him to agree on national television that the decision as to which schedule which drug should be on should be made by the Surgeon General instead of by him. Did it change? Oh no, of course not. But so we again look at what is working and what is working is cigarettes. We're not condoning it just because we don't make cigarettes illegal except for people under 18, but don't make them illegal does not at all mean that we are are condoning this, that we're just regulating and controlling it. No one out there will believe that the government is encouraging people to smoke cigarettes. And it it's, would be true with regard to these other things as well. So, you know, I'm a libertarian. I believe in this. I believe in the philosophy. I believe in having less government intrusion. But Again, we have lost more of our civil liberties because of the war on drugs, really, than anything else I can think of. And in a paragraph in my book, Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed, I cite one called, a chapter called The Erosion of Our Civil Liberties and cite 
only United States Supreme Court cases involving drug distribution and show how our Fourth Amendment protection, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment have been reduced noticeably in an effort to keep us away from these problems. And I can tell you, judges are human too, and they look at the situation and they say, oh my goodness, you know, they seized 50 pounds of cocaine in the trunk of this car. Am I going to tell, throw this out? Well, let's erode civil liberties just a little bit. Let's allow the police to go into the trunks of cars without getting a warrant because they're too trying to help. Has it worked? No. But are civil liberties being reduced? Yes, demonstrably because of the war on drugs, just something else that we are in problems with. I've also written something called Two Paragraphs for Liberty, Solutions that are Practical, Effective, Responsible, Libertarian. And in fact, it's just recently out there. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it in a variety of places. And again, it just talks about these various issues about how comparing government action as opposed to individual action, responsibility as opposed to power, how these things work more more successfully. So some of the best people I've ever met, I've been doing this publicly, as I told you, huh, since April the 8th, remember that, 1992, and some of the very best people I've ever met, I've met as a result of that. Many are in leap. You know, some of them are some people I've met are drug, still drug addicted or former drug addicted people, but most of them are like me. Many involved with law enforcement never used any form of illicit substance. They're just good people recognizing that what is happening here is not working. I actually uh, interviewed a Dr. Greg Smith, who was, this was broadcast on July 12th of 2019, but uh, he is a medical doctor, pain management specialist that educated me and I anticipate our listeners substantially with regard to CBD oil. And I can tell you that's so important. Our government of our country printed a crime against us from my standpoint back in 1936 with the passage of the Marijuana Tax Act, which disallowed any research with regard to cannabis, any research with regard to what the properties are of CBD oil, uh, which have no mind-altering propensities whatsoever, but I'm convinced are going to have a medical positive medical revolution in our country. I was actually running for Senate, like I told you before, in 2004 and for, and for Senate as a libertarian in California and found myself at a medical marijuana dispensary in Marin County, which is just north of San Francisco, arbitrarily went up to a young man who was waiting in line for his medicine, introduced myself and asked him, what's your story? And he said, well, I was involved a few years ago in a real violent motorcycle collision and did real problems to my spine. My medical doctor had me on so many opioids that I was in a in a haze, I was narcotics, I couldn't, couldn't function regularly and got about five or six seizures, brain seizures a day. A friend of mine put me on medical marijuana, so I've been using this. I have weaned myself off all of the narcotics. I lead a pretty much normal life and maybe have one or two brain seizures a week. Now, thinking to myself, this is something that our government has kept us away from. These are things that we need to look into, we need to address, we need to combat, and I promise you that we couldn't do it worse if we tried. Anything we will do would be better than drug prohibition. So again, this is Judge Jim Gray talking to you about my experience, my research into these whole areas. Don't just trust me. Don't listen to me. Just use your own minds. Allow us to discuss this issue. Talk to our, our elected professionals. 
elected politicians and say, why don't we have a needle exchange program? Why are we arresting our children and bringing them into the criminal justice system? This isn't working. So, you know, lots of bad things are happening in our world, but lots of good things are happening too. We're making progress in this area, but it's up to us. If a government isn't working, it's our responsibility. That's what we talk about, about all rise. If we employ these libertarian values of responsibility, education, personal dignity, and, and full, honest discussions, we will all rise together. So that's my presentation to you. Next week, we'll have another guest, but I thought you should hear this one from me, kind of like my left hand talking to my right hand. But I hope you have been listening. I hope you appreciate these things. Don't just listen to me. Investigate it yourself. I am absolutely convinced you will come to the same conclusion. So again, join us next week where we'll have a guest talking about another subject of importance using employing libertarian values. And in the meantime, this is Judge Jim Gray saying to you, as I always do, thank you and Life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my bonds, that help us control.